Welcome to the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network. Hello again, Intelligentsia. John Jeffers here on the Jeffers Brief saying thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. Where to start? All right. Uh, well, it's been an eventful week. Obviously, you got Hurricane Ian coming down. And um, the media is going crazy with it, like they do every year. It's like they have never seen a hurricane before. Look, hurricanes are a fact of life. They happen every year. And every year, there's a run on the stores. Oh, look at this. They picked, cleaned the Home Depot. Well, hold on now. At this point, especially when I see the stories posted on social media, God, I hate social media, but there's no other choice, really. Uh, I put my responses, this is why you are a prepper. You prep when times are good. So that way, when bad juju befalls your life, you have a better chance of riding out and coping with whatever miseries may come your way. Is it a 100% foolproof plan? No. But being a prepper puts you miles and miles ahead of what? Empty shelves, long lines, and everything else that goes with panic buying. So, got that off my chest. Next. Next up is this, my friends. Uh, I got to tell you. uh, All right, I went to my 40-year class reunion and yes I know I'm old don't hold it against me so I was there trying to talk to some people about uh, school shootings and I basically I just said look be careful you know be safe that kind of thing you know very generic well guys they're just And there was one guy there, and he sat there, and God, if I could just remember what smart aleck, dumbass thing he said. And for a split second, I'm thinking, I should punch you in the throat right now. You've had it coming for 40 years. I know other people punched your lights out, and you still haven't learned. And then I thought, you know, nah, I'm going to call it a night. You know, I, and I left. And all the time I'm thinking to myself, I should have punched his lights out. But I, I, I didn't. I did not do that. I wanted to in the worst way. Like I said, this guy was such a smart ass. The geometry teacher back in high school slammed him into the lockers and smacked him around a bit. But that was back in 1980, 1981. They couldn't get away with it now. Well, they used to say, if I remember events correctly, his mom came and raised all kinds of hell and whatnot. But my, my point is this. There are going to be people out there who think, who think they know more than you do. And there's nothing you can do about it. There is nothing you can say that's going to change their mind. And that's fine. 
And there are times you got to keep yourself in check. Because I'm telling you something here. Adults know how to keep their emotions in check. And by keeping your emotions in check, it will very likely keep you from making bad decisions. All right. Oh, I, I, I just... It just, it just grated on my nerves. You know, it's like, ugh, I just... I really, I just wanted to grab him by the throat and punch him out. It was, it was, and I realized, you know, looking back on it, I'm thinking, you know what, good thing I didn't. You know, he's, I'm hoping he'll be in the die-off when the grid goes down. Society will be much better without him. Just my opinion. <laughs> oh. What else do I want? You know, a couple things. The wife got a, a test message this morning on her cell phone, and it was uh, uh, the emer uh, emergency alert notification system. And I'm thinking to myself in the back of my mind, and I'm saying, eh, that's not a good thing. This is not the time to be playing that game of let's test the uh, EAN. So, I'm going to tell you why. The Founding Fathers did not want us to like our government or to trust our government. Because they have dealt with all-powerful central governments their entire lives. So they knew we had to put these in these uh, safety precautions in place. I know it doesn't look like it today because the bottom line is, let's face it, government's going to do what it's going to do because government is the final arbiter of its own power. That's the truth of the matter. So, getting back to what I'm trying to tell you. So, I'm thinking to myself, do I really, why are they doing a test now? You got the Russians screaming they're going to launch nu nuclear weapons. And it's like, God, do we really want to go down there, go down that road? And I'm thinking to myself, mm, yeah, I don't think I like it. So for this episode of the Jeffers Brief, let's talk a little bit about what to do if a worst-case nuclear scenario actually happens. All right, can we do that? So amid increasing tensions with world nuclear powers, the threat of blast becomes scarily more and more plausible. Of course, no one wants to think about a nuclear blast actually going, going off, but it's always better to be equipped with the knowledge in case an unhinged world leader with too much power teeters a degree in the wrong direction and decides to pull the nuclear trigger. Can we all go down that nightmarish path? Now, disaster experts, they've started to share their advice should a bomb go off. Hold it here. I don't know what makes a person a disaster expert. 
It's like the person says, well, I'm a prepper. I'm a prepping expert. Really? What makes you a prepping expert? I'm not. And I've been doing this show for six years. Have I? Six? 2014? No, I take that back. I've been doing it for eight years. Is that right? Yeah, eight years. So I'm, I don't even consider myself an expert. You want, if you want to find a prepping expert, find a person who has actually lived off the grid for a long period of time. Not the guy who says, well, I was in the military and we did long-range reconnaissance. Doesn't matter. You still had logistical support. Don't want to hear about it. That doesn't make you a prepping expert. Just putting it out there now. Does it make you more knowledgeable than Joe Blow on the street? Absolutely it does. No argument. All right, so let's get back to it. So they start to share their advice should a bomb go off, particularly as they say the minutes and hours following a blast are extremely critical in determining your survival. So let's go over it a tad, shall we? How dangerous are nuclear bombs? Well, that depends on the size of the weapon, where it's detonated, and how many people are upwind of the blast. But a single nuclear weapon could potentially result in hundreds of thousands of immediate deaths in a major city. Now, Russia's nuclear arsenal, by the way, is reportedly capable of striking almost anywhere on the planet. Yeah, so, so are the Americans. So there. Some people don't even know what a nuclear explosion is. So the U.S. Disaster and Emergency website describes a nuclear explosion as being caused by a device that uses a nuclear reaction to create an explosion, ranging from small portable devices to a weapon carried by a huge missile. Nuclear devices can cause significant damage in more ways than one. I mean, we're all familiar with the uh, Terminator series. They show that quite vividly. So there are several types of dangers we're talking about here. The blinding brightness, and that's the force of the blast wave, the radiation damage in cells, the fire and heat that can cause injury and destruction, the EMP that can knock out electronics, and of course the radioactive dirt and debris raining down, which is called fallout. All dangers that a nuclear blast poses. So the question is, you know, how much time after the announcement? Uh, well, if a nuclear bomb were headed toward the U.S. from Russia, and if, if residents were immediately warned of the attack, which you know damn well they won't, it's estimated they would have about 30 minutes or less to shelter. That means that in a worst-case scenario, there's no time to plan for the moment. Case in point. Remember a couple years ago, Honolulu, the goofy bastard in the uh, emergency services department decided to post uh, incoming North Korean missile and people lost their fucking minds. You had people putting their kids into the sewer system underground. That, all right, that's how little time you have. And, you want, and so you need to know, where would the announcements be? I mean, well, how'd you get them? Uh, er, Erwin Redner, a public health expert at Columbia University who specializes in disaster preparedness, uh, 
said that the best way to learn of an impending nuclear attack would likely be TV or radio. You all, you might also hear loud, you know, sirens ringing out. Maybe. So what would it look like? If you are looking at the blast, you're going to be blind. You'll burn out your retinas. Because when a nuclear bomb strikes, it sets off an immense, an immense flash of light and a giant orange fireball. You don't have to worry about the giant orange fireball if you're looking at the nuclear flash. You will be blind. So, the first 30-45 minutes, you got to protect your body. Period. Now, you should immediately cover your eyes to make sure you aren't temporarily blinded by the light. Uh, man, you got to be quick and you got to be looking in the right direction for it to happen. So according to uh, this person, a one megaton bomb could temporarily blind people up to 13 miles or 21 kilometers away on a clear day and up to 53 miles or 85 kilometers away on a clear night. So what are, you, what are you supposed to do in case of a nuclear attack? I mean, other than, you know, sit there and, I mean, you know, think about it. There's going to be a million things going through your mind at the same time. So the threat of a blast, especially uh, with the increasing tensions in Europe, they become more and more plausible. Now, the U.S. government has even updated its guidance for a nuclear attack since Putin placed Russian nuclear forces on high alert, which he did that uh, back in March, I think. Of course, no one wants to think about a nuclear blast actually going off, but it's always better to be equipped with knowledge. Uh, I don't actually know how much more we can talk to you about it. I mean, here. Let's do this. If you can, lie face down. Now this is now you gotta listen, you gotta follow me here. In addition to taking cover behind anything that might offer protection, uh, the CDC recommends dropping to the ground with your face down, tucking your hands under your body to protect from flying debris and burning heat. If you have a scarf, cover your nose and mouth with it. You'll also want to keep your mouth open to help ensure that your eardrums don't burst from the overpressure. Now listen to me carefully. Lying down is not a bad idea, but it don't lie down in the middle of the street. Falling debris, it will crush you. So let's, you're going to have to be pretty careful about how you do it. And it depends. Overpressure is coming from the blast. If you decide to lay face down, Face, lot, point your head away from the blast. Keep your legs and your feet together. So that way your feet are like this. Keep your legs together. Flying debris is coming. It's not going to be happy. It's not going to be good. I'm not sure if you'd want to do the scarf, cover your nose and mouth. I mean, with the heat, with the... With the pressure wave, you're going to get some heat. Do you want it melting into your skin? I'm just putting it out there. If you're in the vehicle, 
and the blast goes off, you're going to have to come to a safe stop and duck down within the vehicle. It's important that you don't stay there for too long, however. Now, about 15 minutes before nuclear fallout lands. Now, survivors of a nuclear attack reported have about 15 minutes before the grains of nuclear fallout reach the ground. The only people I even know that have been a survivor of a nuclear attack are in Japan. So, and the United States military did a extensive research on the survivors. Now, the exposure to these particles can result in radiation poisoning. Uh, it's got gamma rays, hmm. which can damage the body cells and potentially be fatal. Gamma rays, ionizing radiation, it ain't a good thing. Then you got radiation exposure, what if you do have it? Now, the potential for radiation exposure decreases 55% an hour after an explosion and 80% after 24 hours. And that's according to John Hopkins Center for Health Security, which is why it's essential to find shelter as soon as possible. If you can find a fallout shelter, <sighs> looking for look for a shelter in the opposite direction of fallen buildings and in the direction away from the wind. If you aren't near any known shelters, try to get as far away from the blast as you can within 10 to 15 minutes. Then immediately take shower to, to avoid the descending radiation cloud. All right, let's, let's take this a little bit here. First of all, if you're in a vehicle, the EMP is going to knock it out. So you got 10 to 15 minutes. Where are you? Your geographic location, what you're doing, what you're wearing, what the weather is like, what the climate's like. You got all that to deal with. And you only got 10 to 15 minutes. If you can find a fallout shelter. Now, there could, you could end up, you know, taking shelter in someone's basement for the time being. And it may not be, you know, their basement may have windows that you can't, that aren't covered. You know, you're going to have to deal with that. Because the fallout's going to have gamma radiation, and it penetrates just about everything but lead. The ideal shelters, uh, you know, outdoor areas, vehicles, mobile homes, are not adequate shelters. I'm not telling you anything new. Instead, go to a brick or concrete buildings like schools or offices with few to no windows, and ideally a basement for camping out. If there aren't sturdy buildings around, still try to get indoors and away from the windows. You know, schools usually and uh, government buildings usually have some type of fallout shelter. The question is, have the fallout fallout shelter has been raided for their goods. Are they now being used for storage? Can you actually gain access to it? I mean, there's a whole list of litany to go with it. But if you're in that 10 to 15 minute time frame, you're going to have to make do with what you can find. That's just the truth of the matter. Uh, you know, multi-story buildings. I don't like them for shelters. 
if you have to go in there, try to stay in the center of it, especially if it has windows, and steer clear of the top and bottom floors. Shock waves can shatter windows up to 10 miles or 16 kilometers away from an explosion, which is why it's important to stay away from windows. Well, flying glass and stuff will cut you. The last thing you need to do is be cut by glass during this situation. Now, the first 24 hours, shower, stay inside, if you can shower. That requires what? Water pressure, which requires what? Electric water pumps. Guess what? Electricity ain't going to be running. But, where you are, oh yeah, screw him. Over half of Zuckerberg's fortune vanishes. Oh, oh, oh no. Oh, rich people's problems. Kiss my ass. Kiss both sides of my ass. All right. So, where you are in the first 24 hours after a blast is critical for reducing radiation exposure, thus critical for your health. While some levels of radiation damage are treatable, there comes a point where nothing can be done. And that's from Catherine Higley, a professor of nuclear science at the Oregon State University. you got to remove your contaminated clothes. If you're outside during the blast or after the fallout arrived, Remove all of your contaminated clothing as soon as possible. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Wipe the exposed skin clean, but do not use disinfectant wipes on your skin. <coughs> Dispose of outer clothing and dirty clothes. Now, the CDC recommends sealing contaminated layers of clothing in a plastic bag, along with any tissues or cloths you use to wipe your body or face and then get the hell away from it. Plastic will not stop radiation. Just to, it doesn't. And then of course you have to shower as soon as possible. Now people who are outside during an explosion should shower as soon as possible. You use warm water and apply soap gently as scrubbing too hard could break your skin, which is your natural protective barrier. So cover any cuts or abrasions while rinsing and if washing isn't possible. Use a clean, wet cloth to wipe any skin or hair that was exposed. Don't use any products. Using things like conditioner, body lotion, face cream after exposure to a nuclear blast can reportedly bind the products to radioactive particles and trap them in your skin and hair, which is the whole point of trying to get yourself clean, decontaminated. Don't forget any spots. Make sure you blow your nose, wipe your ears, eyelids. Any spots where debris might get stuck, and don't forget to clean your any, any pests that are outside after the fallout arrive by gently brushing their coat and washing them with soap and water. I know, I'm telling you guys, some of this, yes, it's good advice in theory, in reality. I don't know, I, I, I don't see it being doable. Eat only sealed food. So it's safe to eat from sealed containers like packages, bottles, or cans, as well as things that were sealed uh, or in sealed places like your pantry or refrigerator. CDC recommends wiping off containers, cookware, counters, and utensils first. You shouldn't eat anything left in cupboard, such as fruits or veggies from a garden because of their exposure to fallout. 
stay inside for 24 hours. Well, you may not have a choice. Until you're told to go outside, you should stay in your shelter for at least 24 hours so the risk of contamination can sufficiently decrease. Well, yeah. Like I said, in theories, this sounds like all good stuff. And of course, practice social distancing. Do, 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 do. If you're in a shared shelter, keep a distance of six feet between yourself and people who are not part of your household. And if possible, wear a mask if you're sheltering with people who are not part of your house. Let me tell you something. You know, you, a mask ain't going to stop the fallout. It's not going to stop radiation. And I, look, should you stay at least six feet? Perhaps, because you don't know. If you don't know that person personally and that they personally decontaminated and you did and you got too close to them, they're giving off the radiation, and guess what? They just recontaminated you. So, there you have it. And you have to have, have an order of priority established. Now, though you might want to reunite with your loved ones immediately, the, the priority is that everyone stays safe and uncontaminated the first 24 hours following the blast. After that period, you can reunite and avoid exposure to dangerous radiation. Look. You know, you got to try and keep your space clean as much as you can. Throw away your cell phone. EMP rendered it nothing but a paperweight. Toys for the kids, eh, you got to disinfect it, decontaminate it. Avoid touching high, you know, high-touch surfaces such as doorknobs, so how the hell are they supposed to get out, as much as possible, and wash your hands frequently. If you got the water and you can spare it, and this is important, guys. Cell phones, television, internet, it's all going to be disrupted. EMP is going to blow out the, the uh, electrical grid. So you better uh, you know, have an official, you know, you got to find somewhere to get information. That's really important. Such as when it's safe to exit, where you should go. So battery-operated. Hand crank radios are a safe bet in an emergency nuclear situation. I myself have two of those. Just because it's good to have. So how do you prepare for it? There are small things we as preppers can do. For example, identify shelter locations in your area that you're going to be in, that you live in. You could, and you should already have it if you're a prepper, Prepare an emergency supply kit with things like bottled water, packaged foods, medications, battery-powered radio, flashlight, and a change of clothes. By the way, do not, do not put the batteries in the radio until you are actually ready to use it. Change of clothes. There you, I mean, that's really kind of the bare basics. And are you going to be stressed out? Yeah, you're going to be stressed. You're going to be beyond stressed. So you should learn uh, manage uh, stress management techniques, trauma. You're going to be dealing with people who are injured. And that's just the fact of the matter. So this is what the government's talking about. I'm not real hopeful. 
some of it is just not realistic. It just isn't. That's the truth of the matter, my friends. Another thing I want to talk to you about today is uh, benzodiazepines. Maybe you know what they are. Maybe you don't. But many, 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 many people are on them. And when those meds run out, you're going to have an issue. Whether it's a family member or your prepper group. Now, uh, Daisy Luther over at uh, Organic Prepper put this together. I, I wasn't going to do it, but I think it's important for us to at least be aware of it, that it's out there. So let's ask ourselves, what are benzodiazepines? Some of the most popular and frequently prescribed benzodiazepines are Xanax, Valium, Ativan, Clonopin, Restoral. Benzo prescriptions were already dizzy, dizzyingly high, doubling between 2000 and, uh, 2003 and 2015. Then, of course, we had the uh, pandemic and all its accompanying woes. And benzos were prescribed even more as people suffer from social, social isolation, financial woes, media stoked fear of the illness, and other stressors. So here, here are the stats. Now researchers concluded that 12.5% of adults in the U.S. used benzodiazepines, which extrapolates to about 30.5 million persons. However, only 2.1% of U.S. adults misused them at least once, and only 0.2% met the criteria, criteria for benzodiazepine use disorders. So among the benzodiazepine users, 17.1% misuse them. So is misusing the term is probably is pro probably a better term is misused. Benzodiazepines were never supposed to be taken on a long-term basis, but people take them for years and years, not realizing that by taking their medicine exactly as prescribed, they're developing a dangerous physical dependency, and the misuse, the misuse often comes straight from the doctor's office. What does that have to do with prepping, you ask? With the high numbers of people prescribed, benzodiazepines, chances are someone you love is taking them too. Or if, or let's be real, when our medication supply dwindles, these people will be left without a medication they took as prescribed, and they could face a horrible withdrawal, sometimes ending in death. Because of the dangerous benzodiazepine withdrawal, it's important to know what the symptoms are, how to help, how to taper off safely, and some of us have seen the after effects of somebody weaning off benzo. It's not pretty, and cold turkey is even worse. If you take benzodiazepines, don't think you're just fine because you're taking them as directed. You're still developing a physical dependency. So please understand there's a difference between physical dependency and addiction. Being dependent on benzos doesn't mean the person's a junkie out there robbing the neighbor's for their next fix. 
you would never even realize that dependency existed until the medications were taken away. So if you're not prepared to manage withdrawal, I suspect we could lose many loved ones due to this prescription medication once it becomes unavailable. So, you're a prepper. How should withdrawal be managed? In a perfect world, all benzodiazepines uh, withdrawal would be handled by a caring medical professional, and therein lies part of the problem. If you have to go to the doctor every month or three to renew your prescription under the guise of being monitored, that's money maker. And I'm not suggesting that all doctors who prescribe benzos do it for the money, but some do. If that's the case, then they have a vested interest in keeping the patient on the medication. As well, many doctors in the hundreds of thousands don't seem to understand that these drugs are meant for short-term use only. They may not see a problem with a patient continuing to take the med indefinitely. If that's the case, then help can be difficult to come by, particularly if money is tight. Detox facilities may or may not work because those who take benzos aren't necessarily addicts. They're dependent. Weaning off benzos takes time, longer than most folks would be in rehab. But if your doctor won't help, your best course of action is to find a doctor who will. Seek out a doctor who has a more osteopathic practice. They'll nearly always want you off those drugs, but they'll be able to prescribe the medications needed to taper off. So, what are the symptoms of the withdrawal? It can range anywhere from unpleasant to deadly. It's highly, highly recommended never go cold turkey. That not only escalates the initial symptoms to almost unbearable levels, but can also set the patient up for long-term health crisis called protracted withdrawal symptoms in which the symptoms last for years. The early symptoms will start within 24 hours of stopping the medication. Acute withdrawal takes place after that, and that's far more intense. And this can last anywhere from 5 to 28 days or even longer. Some people suffer from PWS for years after that. 40% of people who take benzos for more than six months, even as directed, will suffer from moderate to severe withdrawal. So Medical News Today lists some of the symptoms a person suffering from benzo withdrawal could experience. Physical aches and pains that can range from uncomfortable to severe. Abnormal sensations such as feeling that bugs are crawling, crawling on the skin. Oh yeah, I've seen those. Muscle spasms, hyperventilation, sweating, weight loss, anorexia, anxiety attacks. If you're in a grid down situation, you can just cross anxiety attacks right the hell off the uh, list because everybody will be suffering from that. Trouble concentrating, hypersensitivity, nausea, vomiting, insomnia, panic attacks. You can just cross that off too. Panic attacks, yeah. Grand mal seizures, detachment from reality, depression, hallucinations or delusions. There is very little information about managing withdrawal online because it should be managed by a healthcare professional. Unfortunately, if things have gone sideways, this help may not be available. So what should preppers know about benzodiazepine withdrawal? Not a doctor, not giving you medical advice. I'm telling you that now. You have to know what medications your loved ones are taking. 
And it's just as true of the benzodiazepines. There are many meds that could cause severe problems with stop cold turkeys, particularly psychiatric ones. If you know what medications your loved ones are prescribed, you can prep now by learning about safe withdrawal specific to those medications. If you're able to find alternatives, do so. If you can taper off this medication now before things go sideways, it will be one less crisis to manage later on. So talk with your doctor, see if there's an alternative that doesn't create a physical dependency. And I'm not suggesting you stop taking your meds, nor should you encourage others to do so, and I'm not telling you to. I'm just telling you, grid goes down, bad juju's coming. And more, and it's coming from more than one sector, one attack vector to you. Now stopping these medications, cold turkey, is how people die. At the first sign that medication is becoming difficult to acquire, consider finding a doctor to aid in tapering out the medication, if he, they can even have it. If you have been taking these medications for a long time, consider taking steps now with your doctor to find alternatives that don't carry the risk of severe withdrawal. So being able to identify the symptoms of withdrawal can help if your loved one is going through it. Many of the symptoms listed above mimic other health concerns or mental health crises. Oh boy, there's going to be a grid goes down. There'll be a lot of mental health crises. And it's easier to manage if you know the reason it's happening. It can also give the sufferer hope that this will pass. This is important. Most people who have become dependent on this medication trusted their doctors. They were truly suffering and found relief. They're feeling physically and mentally awful anyway, and additional judgment from you won't help this process. Don't judge them, people. That's what they're coming down to say. And your compassion could mean the difference between success or failure. Remember, if meds are no longer available, failure could be fatal. So what do you do? You stockpile meds for the taper, if possible. It can be helpful to stockpile enough medication to manage a taper. Medication should be kept hidden and handed off carefully reduced doses, preferably according to a doctor's advice, if you can find one at that time. Some people who are extra sensitive may need their meds cut by a fraction of a milligram at a time, and some may need longer than others between cuts. Many experts recommend waiting until withdrawal symptoms have completely gone away before further reducing the medication. Depending on the dose a person was taking and how long they were taking it for, it could require several months to a year to be completely off the drug. So be prepared to manage the taper. What is that? Get it out of here. So be prepared to manage the taper for the person going through withdrawal. Their judgment is very likely going to be impaired, and they're not going to feel up to handling the details. So understand the timeline. It's not a short-term recovery for most people. Expect at least, a, at least a month of downtime while a person is tapering off the medication. Keeping busy with tasks they can manage can help them focus on something other than how awful they feel. But if they need to rest, respect their limits. And you need to learn everything you can about it. Because this goes for more than just benzodiazepines. It's true for any psychiatric medication, and there are a lot of people out there on it. 
You need to learn everything you can about helping a person who's tapering off their drug. This information is going to be fairly difficult to find. You may be able to locate more advice on a forum than on an official website due to the dangerous nature of withdrawal. Obviously, you have to be very careful with the information you get on a forum. These folks are not doctors or people who are going through the same thing that you or your loved one may face, but you can learn what to expect. You can develop a bit of an uh, expected timeline. You can learn about worst case scenarios. It's often the people suffering the most extreme experiences who share on the forum. You may also learn from some coping mechanisms that people use successfully to handle their symptoms. Knowing what to expect is a huge part of the battle. And I would suggest doing this. You should print off any particularly useful information in case you need it one day. Print it off. Put it into your binder. You need to have a prepping binder. If you think you're just going to use your cell phone and get on the internet to look stuff up, you're in for a real big surprise and disappointment. If it's written down, it's memorialized. If it's memorialized properly, you always have your reference library handy. Uh, what else here? You have to prep for benzodiazepine withdrawal like any other emergency, guys. You need to prep for the withdrawal like you would any other crisis on the horizon. That means understanding it thoroughly, knowing the risk, taking steps to mitigate those risks and putting back items to make the crises more bearable and comfortable. There, that's it. I mean, that's, and I didn't know anything about this until I ran across this article and I thought, you know what? Yeah, this is important information. That I wanted to get out to you. All right. As we watch the world play nuclear chicken. And who the... Oh, programming note. Programming note. The Bon Wee Hunt show coming up on Thursday. I'll have it published on Friday. Uh, we Hunt has some business contacts, uh, long-term business contacts, who are still in China. And you'll get an idea of something's not right in China. A lot of speculation, but we will find out for sure. Uh, Bon is in contact with those people. So we should be able to get some, some interesting information from people who are actually in China as opposed to people who are not in China speculating by what they see, what they hear. So, programming note. So, keep an eye on that. I'm trying to... Oh, we're on uh, Telegram now. If you have Telegram, you want to follow us there, that's fine. I was going to get on a bunch of these other social networks, but I just can't stand social media as it is. A word of warning. For those of you that are easily upset, offended, angry, whatever, if you go to a platform like Gab, Gab is a free speech platform. Nothing is censored. You will run across anti-Semites, racists, knuckleheads, fools, whatever. Hell, myself and another person were called 
what, what, what were the words they used? Oh, they referred to us as retarded faggots. Hmm. Okay. My reply was, appreciate it, laugh out loud, move on. My point is this. Free speech platforms can be a really rough place. And if you get upset because somebody calls you names or attacks you personally, you best not go there. It's just the way it is. So I'm just telling you, and that's probably true with any other free speech platform. You're going to run across these people. You don't have to put up with them. You can block them, and that's fine. I even found out somebody blocked me. I mean, what the hell am I saying? But that's okay. I don't take it personally. I wish them all the best. But um, just so you know, you know, I don't want you to go to Gab thinking it's like Facebook. It really isn't. Because people are going to have their own opinions, their own thoughts. They are going to want to express those. And that's fine. Just bear in mind, you may not like what you read, what you see. So, if you go there, just know it's there. I've been called worse names by better people. And I respond the same way. Um, by the way, if you're um, interested old book. It's called Verbal Judo. It's about that thick. It's not a long read. It was at the, I don't know if it still is, it was re a required course that we had to take when I was working at the sheriff's office. Because you can't get upset when you're a police officer when people are calling you names and calling you everything but a child of God. Verbal Judo teaches you how to handle that. And I use it. I've used it since I read the book. God, I read it 20 years ago. I've used it ever since. I would suggest that, you know what, it's probably a good idea if you can find a copy of it. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't even looked for it. But it might it'd be a good reading. Uh, the Fourth Turning, also another excellent choice book to read. It gives you an idea of hey Kat. Uh, it gives you an idea of what to expect on a timeline. I've talked about this before. Of what's going on politically and socially here in the United States. Does it carry over to other countries on the in the world? I I maybe the principles do, but the timeline doesn't. With that said, I'm not getting, like I said, fourth turning is an excellent choice. Verbal judo, it's a real easy read. It's only like that thick. And I think you'll get some use out of it. As a matter of fact, after I posted my reply to the guy who referred to myself and others as retarded faggots, I just put down, appreciate it, LOL. He got back to me. I thought, ah, here we go. Nah, he just sat there and laughed and just, that was the last time I heard from him. You know what? There's a, you know, a lot of people say, just ignore it. Well, you could, but being a human being, you're going to have this reaction. You want to say something back. 
Herbal Jewel kind of helps you come up with some good things. Here, I'm going to give you a free Verbal Jewel lesson. 30 seconds, most. Using the example of you're, you are a retarded faggot. I did not write down I appreciate that. What I wrote was appreciate that. Not appreciate, just appreciate. Guess what? No such word as appreciate. He just read it for what it was. And me, what do I care? You want to call me names? I don't care. Please. I know who I am. I'm secure in my personhood. No, I, I, so there, 30-second verbal judo lesson. One of many things you can learn. Plus, being a prepper group leader, you will want to read that book. So please, if, if you can find it, get it. I don't know if it's even in print anymore, but I, there, there, it could be out there. I would, of course, I would check Amazon because Amazon was originally a bookstore. So, and they have other other bookstores that are affiliated with Amazon, so you might be able to find it one of those there. All right, thanks again for listening. I appreciate it. I said appreciate, not appreciate. <laughs> I do appreciate it for listening to the air. I'm John Jeffers on the Jeffers Brief. Prep today, live tomorrow, and have an American day. Until, you know what, next week, it might be a little late. I'm going on, going to Iowa this weekend to meet with some preppers and patriots. Iowa. So, for those of you that will be there, I'll know that I'm on the way. All right, until next time, next week. Thanks again for listening.